thanks in large part to NAST, where cartoons have become hugely important and influential in this country. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Although forgotten today, the 1884 presidential election was a fascinating time in American history. As Republican James Blaine ran against Democrat Grover Cleveland, the Republican Party splintered with many unable to support Blaine. What makes this time so interesting for journalism history was the prominence and influence of political cartoons, which we'll be talking about today with two guests who both studied the role of cartoons in the 1884 election. Our first guest, Harlan Magumson of Elon University, will discuss his research, A Dude and Pharisee, Cartoon Attacks on Harper's Weekly Editor George William Curtis and the Mugwumps in the Presidential Campaign of 1884. Later in the show, we'll hear from postdoctoral fellow Flora Koo about her work, The Ideological Influence of Political Cartoons on the 1884 U.S. Presidential Race. Harlan, welcome to the show. What interested you in studying political cartoons? Well, it was anything but a straight line. I had been a journalist for a dozen years, started off as a reporter, then copy editing, then did graphic design, typography work with newspapers. And I went back to graduate school and uh, UNC Chapel Hill for my PhD and knew I wanted to study history as my research area. And I started looking into Telegraph and how it changed how news was delivered. I thought it was a nice tie to what was happening to the internet at the time. I quickly realized that that had already been done and quite well. So I was kind of stuck. And I, so I kept reading about that general period and I stumbled across this election that allegedly had been decided by political cartooning. And uh, the journalist in me perked up and said, hmm, can that be possibly true? Is that started my interest. And then I stumbled across Thomas Nast had drawn in that campaign. And I remember vaguely from my history class with Calder Pickett at the University of Kansas, I, I remembered a little bit about Nast. And then the more I got into it, I thought it was a, a really fun and intriguing way to sort of tie together my interest in history with um, the ability to my past journalistic experience in writing and editing um, and graphic design. So it kind of opened up a new window for me to explore those areas. So we're focusing specifically today on the presidential election of 1884. And you note that political cartoonists bludgeoned the majority party candidates during the 1884 presidential campaign with a vitrolic assault, perhaps without parallel in American history. So what was it about this election, which is now virtually forgotten, that made it so divisive? 
one of the things that was most notable is, is that it was so uh, personally, the vitriol was so personal and about personal character. Now, on the Demo- on the Republican side, you had James Blaine, who was former Speaker of the House, former U.S. Senator, former Secretary of State, so quite a resume, but always tinged with scandal. Um, most notably, back in 1876, it had emerged uh, allegations that he was benefiting improperly from the railroads, getting them good deals and getting kickbacks, in essence. And uh, some letters emerged in 1876. A, a clerk named Mulligan saved some letters that uh, that he thought he thought were incriminating. And one of the letters was written, "Burn this letter," allegedly in Blaine's handwriting. Uh, Blaine escaped. Uh, the worst of it in 1876. He had managed to get a hold of the letters himself, uh, read excerpts in Congress, refused to release them. He became ill later that year. So um, any serious uh, follow-up on that in 1876 was blunted. But more of those letters popped up in 1884 when Blaine became the nominee. And that was just one of several other uh, instances where Blaine was accused of financial misdeeds while in office. So that stuck with him. And so a lot of the, uh, not only cartoon coverage, but coverage of the campaign focused on uh, Blaine and his alleged sticky hands, if you will, um, in terms of um, financial misdoings. On the flip side, Democrats, you had Grover Cleveland, who was the governor of New York and had got the moniker Grover the Good because he had uh, taken on corruption in New York state politics. He had taken on uh, the Tammany Hall uh, Democratic machine in New York City. But that was put into dispute when uh, it emerged that a decade earlier he had had an affair and fathered a child out of wedlock with a woman named Maria Halpin. And this has been whispered for years, but it uh, became a big issue in the press. Later in the campaign, uh, Maria Halpin actually did interviews toward the end of the campaign, uh, not only talking about the child out of wedlock, but that Grover Cleveland had forced himself upon her. So this had both these scandals, both of these candidates had uh, moral misgivings by the public. And so this manifested itself in both um, press coverage and that of political cartoonist at the time. So uh, it was just intensely personal in the way some saw these candidates as being unfit for office. And how much influence did political cartoons have during this time? They were hugely influential, and and thanks in large part to Thomas Nast, who I mentioned earlier, who had started drawing for Harper's Weekly back during the Civil War, uh, but he also later went on to develop the um, symbols for the donkey and the elephant for the two political parties. Uh, our depiction of Santa Claus, the United States, was a Nast creation. Uh, Nast became most famous in 18, mid-1870s when he took on Boss Tweed, who was the Democratic political boss in New York City. And um, in fact, Boss Tweed was alleged to have said that he didn't mind as much all the other reporting about his alleged corruption, but them damn pictures, in his words, by Nast um, made it stick in his mind to the public. Uh, Another story, maybe apocryphal, maybe not, when Tweed had uh, escaped um, overseas, that the customs officials had recognized Tweed from Nast cartoons and had uh, uh, captured him and brought him back uh, to the United States to serve his sentence. So uh, thanks in large part to Nast work, cartoons had become hugely 
important and influential in this country. Uh, but also interesting about 1884 is this is really NAST last campaign. Uh, he had left Harper's for a year or so before. And um, so his time was kind of ending, but a new kind of cartooning was just on the horizon, which makes it a really interesting time to study. You discussed comic weeklies. What were those and what were their purpose? Yeah, you might think of them as something like a Gilded Age Mad Magazine or National Lampoon, or if you want to go cross media here, maybe had a similar role as what we think of as the Daily Show today. Um, Puck was the most influential of these type publications. It started off as a German language publication in the early 1870s by an immigrant named Joseph Kepler. Uh, by 1876, it became a English language magazine. It was remarkable in a couple of ways. First was technological. Um, Kepler had perfected the color lithography process for uh, mass publications. So Puck each week had a vivid color cartoon on the front and the back and also a double page spread in the middle. Um, actually, later on, Kepler and the World's Fair in the 1890s had uh, demonstrated his, uh, his lithography technique during during that event. So from a technological standpoint, Puck was hugely important. It was also the first successful publication in this country to focus primarily on political and social satire. And Puck wasn't necessarily attached to a, it wasn't a party organ, as had been the case earlier in the century, uh, but it was generally for reform in the government. So clearly they were not going to go for James Blaine, given his, uh, his record uh, in terms of uh, political corruption. And it skewered Blaine as a tattooed man. Maybe the most famous cartoons of the campaign were the names of the alleged Blaine scandals were tattooed all over Blaine's body. I think there were 22, 23 such cartoons. Um, and as is the case with media history, a lot of times if something is successful, it's repeated. So a number of competitors to Puck started to emerge in the mid-1880s. Uh, the most successful was The Judge, which was started by... Uh, people who had left Puck Magazine a couple years earlier, and the judge had kind of had an uneven editorial uh, stance over the years, but 1884 kind of landed on being against Grover Cleveland. So um, you had this new emerging form of satire, and some others other than Puck was starting to take up the mantle now. So there was a kind of a, a, a dual discussion going on between these two publications or with the fitness of these two candidates. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, the candidates in more depth here. It's interesting to note that in 1884, the Republican Party fractured and had many who couldn't support James Blaine for president and instead supported Grover Cleveland. Your paper focuses on the immense backlash to this, with Republicans turning on their fellow Republicans. And this independent group was called the Mugwumps. <laughs> so tell us why that name and what the Mugwumps were about. Well, what they were about first, and they were largely wealthy, well-educated New York, New England Protestants, and they had a couple of concerns. One was cultural; they felt the need to have to to lift up, so to speak, the standards for the working class. That was one of their interests. Second, politically, they were very against, very much against machine politics that had merged in many of the cities. And they're really outspoken about political patronage. They're against this idea that you should put your cronies into positions in government and that should be instead on the merits of the individuals to fill the job they were supposed to do. So, um, so Blaine, on the Republican side, Blaine had, during his career, had given some lip service to 
civil service reform. He's kind of lukewarm about it. Uh, but those financial problems we had talked about earlier that made him completely unacceptable with the mugwumps. And so they bolted the party uh, at the convention. Uh, I saw the name mugwump a couple stories. One that is an Algonquin word meaning important person. And that was meant as a sort of a backhanded kind of way, implying they're sort of sanctimonious and holier than thou. Um, alternative use emerged during this campaign, though, that mugwump meant was some that was somebody that was on the fence. Their mug was on one side and their wump was on the other. So I'll let you decide which one. I'll let you decide which one is more um, is more likely. Hmm. Uh, one of the most targeted figures in the presidential election of 1884 was actually a Harper's Weekly editor, George Curtis who pulled support from Republicans, prompting attacks from pro-GOP cartoonists. So why was Curtis deemed such an important figure to target? Well, a couple of reasons. One, he had been involved in the founding of the Republican Party back in the 1850s. So this was like one of the originals who was um, leaving the fold, so to speak. So that of itself would have been cause for concern. I think more importantly, Harper's Weekly had played such a role in defining what it meant to be a Republican, especially the Civil War and afterward. Um, the publication was a staunch support of Lincoln throughout the Civil War, um, strongly supported Mrs. S. Grant and both his bids for president. And Curtis even served as a chair of a commission on civil service reform that, that Grant had founded during his first term. Um, but also Harper's was the most successful and widely circulated political news periodical of its time. So, so clearly, Republicans stay in the fold were concerned about the effect this would have. If Harper's had turned against the Republican Party, um, this certainly would mean that uh, a number of the people aligned with Curtis would also be leaving as well. So it was great concern um, to, the, to the election prospects of the Republicans in this campaign. The heart of your paper is how Republicans back then were equating lack of party loyalty with lack of male characteristics. So give us some of the cultural context of what was going on at the time for why this was a target. Yeah, you get a little sense of some of the vitriol of this campaign. Um, the judge magazine during uh, when uh, the mugwumps had left bolted during the convention, uh, defined the mugwumps as, quote, spoiled children or semi-imbecile old women. Uh, so you sort of get a sense of the tenor here. And in some of this, you know, you see as sort of, you know, sort of sadly typical uh, insult, but it goes a little deeper than that, I think, as a number of scholars have indicated this idea of what is it like to, what is it to be a man in this period? was going under a lot of changes here. And this is kind of the first time they argue that manliness was defined as being an opposition of, or being what is not feminine in society. Um, in part, this is a reaction to women becoming a little more assertive. And in part, the abolitionist movement scared a number of men. And a lot of this response was misogynistic, sadly, um, as you can imagine. But there was a second reaction that, that men had lost their way after the Civil War and just needed to redefine themselves um, in a much more rugged and, shall we say, testosterone-filled manner. And the mugwumps were, were genteel. Their um, the way their their mannerisms and the way they were uh, the way they conducted themselves to many seemed like this did not fit uh, the more um, more rugged style that some thought men should be moving toward in this period of time. Um, the, the way they dressed, the way they handled themselves also bore some resemblance to the dude or the dandy 
at the time, which were these um, young, well-to-do Eastern males that were very concerned about fashion and, and the way they looked, um, probably not that interested in, in fields that would have a lot of manual labor involved in it. Again, kind of against this idea of what ruggedness should be for men in this period of time. So it was not a large leap for uh, publications to try to lump in the mugwumps with the dudes and the dandies uh, in the city at the time. And in, in the press and popular culture, the dude was often seen as being sexually ambiguous at best. So again, a, a, you see a lot of writing and a lot of uh, cartoons at the time try to lump the two together, mugwumps in with the dude and dandy at the time. So uh, it was it was interesting to do this research and realize there was a lot more going on in terms of um, defining what man what a man was going to be as we neared the end of this uh, 19th century. Yeah. So going off of that, expand a little bit um, in how these accusations of lack of manliness played out in these political cartoons. Yeah, you see a number of, of interesting ties here. So you see some biblical reference. You, one cartoon in particular where Curtis was Eve tempting Adam as an independent voter and the apple was uh, made to look like Grover Cleveland's face, kind of interesting. Um, another one, you see uh, um, you see George William Curtis dressed as a frumpy housewife and offering independent scraps to a Democratic cat. You see a lot of reference to Miss Nancy, which had been a term of derision toward males who were seen as being effeminate, um, dating back decades before this. So often you would see George William Curtis dressed in women's clothes. One really interesting cartoon from this time in in The Judge was uh, Curtis holding a rag doll, and the rag doll was stuffed with newspapers with the names of publications who had sort of been aligned with the mugwumps here, or at least was uh, at least thought bolting from Blaine as a candidate was a good idea. So there's sort of this mother-child relationship going on here that was really interesting, uh, but also the title of it was "Led Astray," and that not only it was really a call to Cleveland's scandal, illegitimate child scandal. And so Led Astray was not only reminding people of the Grover Cleveland child scandal, but also gave the idea that Curtis was weak, um, that a, a, a real man would not have been taken under by um, by the idea of Cleveland being a true reform, much as Maria Halpin, it was alleged, had been taken in by the lecherous Grover Cleveland. So it's interesting. Some of these cartoons are weaving and there were some that Curtis had some level of power here, um, but ultimately was weak for having uh, not stuck with uh, the Republican ticket. What were your main takeaways about the role of cartoons in the 1884 election? Well, several things. One, I became convinced you can't say cartoons decided the election. So that initial journalist in me, there's just no way to know. And as 20th century scholarship showed us, play cartoons are much more likely to to resonate with people who agree with the idea or, or your, your own personal biases, your own personal choices here are much more likely to determine how you're going to see a cartoon. But there's no doubt that cartoons influenced the, what the criteria were going to be for how we were going to select a president in 1884. Um, the judge pushed forward this narrative about Cleveland being this lecherous bachelor that uh, was not not worthy of the office. Again, you saw this in other um, 
articles and other publications as well. But the judge was successful in, in sort of bringing this more into the public light as well. Uh, moving on, James Blaine, after Puck started its series portraying him as the tattooed man, you would see the word tattooed pop up in other publications and newspapers, including the New York Times. So it was it was clear that there was something that we would later call agenda setting in the 20th century going on here, that they were at minimum setting the tone for what was going to be important in this campaign. And lastly, daily newspaper publishers, you could tell they started to see the value of the cartoon and its ability to um, at least get readers, get eyeballs here. Uh, Most notably, Joseph Pulitzer, who had just purchased the New York World a year previous, toward the end of the campaign, ran a cartoon on the front page that covered about the top half of the page, showing Blaine having dinner, which is actual dinner with millionaires, um, in New York City, but at the bottom of this cartoon was a poor couple begging for scraps at the end of the table. So, and that cartoon went on to be republished and also placed on billboards across New York City. So it was clear that, again, we can't say that it, it changed the vote, any votes in the election, but it was clearly influential in setting what was going to be important, what were going to be the criteria for deciding who was going to be the next president. We usually ask our guests at the end of the episode to answer why journalism history matters, but I'm instead going to ask you today, why does political cartoon history matter? I think it opens up a window to what a culture finds important at a particular moment in time. I think one thing cartoonists try to do is is make sense of a candidate or a policy or a particular scandal. And most often to do that, they have to draw from something that resonates with the public. So that can be art, that can be literature, that can be popular culture. Uh, but it let it opens up a different way of viewing what a society in particular found important at that at that individual time. And then in part, it's interesting to see then how that is put upon whatever the candidate that's running or whatever the issue at heart. How are they making those connections between them? And I don't think you get that necessarily from editorials or from news coverage. I think it opens up a different window of of how cartoonists saw the world going on around them at the time and what people at the time found interesting and important and notable. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And now here's more about another journalism podcast our listeners may be interested in. Hi, I'm Mark Simon. On my podcast, The Journalism Salute, we spotlight important and interesting journalism organizations and people. The goal of our show is to introduce you to different perspectives and different careers in the field. We talk to reporters, editors, publishers, and professors. There are so many great groups to learn about. We're also here to show you that journalists are not the enemy of the people. That's the Journalism Salute, available wherever you get your podcasts. We now move on to our next guest, Flora Koo, discussing the ideological influence of political cartoons on the 1884 U.S. presidential race. Flora, welcome to the show. What interested you in political cartoons? Well, I like the sense of humor it has with regards to the way it illustrates serious political topics such as elections. It really makes you think deeper about the subject matter. The cartoons, the way they put across a very serious subject and the way it makes you laugh about it. I, so that was what intrigued me about like the cartoons Thomas Ness and Pop Magazine had. And that's why I went and, and did the study. 
So why did you focus on the election of 1884 specifically? It was the first and only time a Democratic presidential candidate won the highest office since the Civil War. That was why I chose 1884. And how much influence did political cartoons have during this time? Um, It has some influence. Political cartoons was a way to educate the public about the elections, and this could be seen in Harper's Weekly and Park Magazine. And 19th century cartoons tend to have a political focus. For instance, some of the newspapers during that period of time, they used illustrations to depict the threat to American security, such as British colonialism. So it didn't necessarily portray always all the time the personal interests of the cartoonist. And David Spencer once described it as a vehicle of persuasion as any contemporary television commercial. So you look at the work of famous cartoonist Thomas Nast. Tell us more about him. He was known as the father of modern-day political cartoons. He was born in Germany in 1840. He migrated to the U.S. before he was 10 years old. He had an exceptional talent for drawing. He started at Frank Leslie's Illustrated News, and he moved on to Harper's Weekly. His campaign against the corrupt William Tweed was perhaps what propelled him to the forefront or the top of his profession. It was the Tweed cartoons that made Ness a celebrity. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the cartoons that you looked at. Tell us about some of your findings. When he determined that he could not support Blaine, who was corrupt, he decided to support the Democratic candidate Cleveland. And he drew several cartoons that depicted Blaine as corrupt and Cleveland having a very clean record. And he deliberately did this sharp contrast between the two men, the portrayal of the two men. For example, he drew Cleveland as regal, stately, and he put him on the front cover of Harper's Weekly when he won the Democratic nomination. In the same issue of Harper's Weekly, he depicted Blaine as the plume knight. And he drew these three plume feathers in Blaine's top hat and make him look silly and ridiculous. And the feather itself is a visual element to show the controversial nature of Blaine's character. And he, besides that, besides the drawing, he added a little poster on the wall. For Blaine, he wrote there, we dislike him most for the friends that he made. For Cleveland's cartoon, he put there, we love him for the enemies he made. So you have another section in your paper called The Chinese Question. Give us some context on that and what you found. There were some anti-Chinese sentiments in the years leading to 1884. And the Chinese were often described as coolies, slaves, paupers, and rat eaters. So these terms were very pretty much stereotypes, and they emphasized them as the outgroup. So the Chinese, along with the African-Americans and Native Americans, were not allowed to vote. The Chinese Exclusion Act was signed into law in 1882 by President Chester Arthur, which prohibited the immigration of Chinese laborers, especially in California. It was against such a backdrop that Wong Kar Chong wrote the letter. And in that letter, you could sense that he was very, very frustrated with the entire situation. And so tell us a little bit more about the cartoons. Thomas Blaine, the way he saw, he had a lot of sympathy, empathy for the Chinese. So in one of the cartoons I think he drew in 1871, he drew like Columbia, you know, with her hand on the Chinese man who was very defeated against the wall that was plastered with 
a lot of words that wall depicted the wall of public protest. And that was one of the ways he advocated and fought for the Chinese through a whole series of those study cartoons. He was introduced in this cartoon as one of the oldest diplomats. And he negotiated the Burlingame Treaty in 1868, which was an attempt to protect the Chinese immigrants in the U.S. from being discriminated against. So Colombia here touches the Chinese diplomat on the sh shoulder to introduce him to the international community. And this treaty appears in many of Nas' cartoons as being defiled by Blaine, because Blaine was in the other direction. He voted for the Chinese Exclusion Act. And Blaine is often shown, you know, step, for instance, stepping on the Berlingang Treaty with his back towards the Chinese diplomat. So he rejects the spirit of that treaty. And Nas cartoons showed the other, what the power of cultural representation of the Chinese question in contrast to Blaine's position was. You have another section of your paper called The Tattooed Man. So what did you find related to that? Tell us more about that. Park Magazine was the one that depicted Blaine as the tattooed man, and his body was embellished with the names of all the different scandals that he was involved in. Now, the graphic use of tattoos was a satirical device that started much earlier, so it wasn't new. But Park's portrayal of Blaine as the tattooed man in the Dime Museum, it was very, very well received. It was so well received to, to the point that their competitor, Another cartoon called uh, another cartoon magazine called The Judge acknowledged that the tattooed man imagery was so effective in shaping public opinion that they themselves copied the idea. So when Blaine won the Republican nomination, the judge used the tattooed man metaphor as a form of rebuttal. So the judge captioned their own version of Blaine as a tattooed man as let those who laugh with who win. Let those let those laugh who win. And another week later, he they printed another cartoon showing the other great men, such as Blaine, James Garfield, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, have also been tattooed as well. So this tattooed man was a very powerful image that created a mental picture in, in the minds of the public. And it was something that was very well remembered and what uh, Blaine was known for. In your research, you ponder, was Nast a president maker? What did you conclude? I think he is a very important figure in the campaign to make Cleveland the next president. But it took more than just the person of Nast. In fact, you find that Parks Magazine, the colorful tattooed man, seemed to have greater impact than his black and white drawings. Their rich colors was a very uh, important draw with the audience. And it was the Puck's cartoons that were copied instead of Nest art. So while the cartoons itself as a form of medium can help to achieve consensus, they alone do not determine what that consensus will be. The issue has to resonate with the public for it to appear on a public agenda. And I think that was what happened. The agenda setting effect from the car cartoons collectively influenced the attitudes towards the candidates and affected the pro-democratic shift in 1884. 
So we usually ask our guests at the end of the episode to answer why journalism history matters, but I'm instead going to ask you, why does political cartoon history matter? I think political cartoons history are fascinating because of the value to, especially to the historian, in what they reveal about the culture, about the society, about the community that produced and circulated them. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. If you like our podcast, leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. Good luck.